Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. So we have a 24-year-old medical student seeks your advice about an episode that happened over her brief summer vacation. Um, She was staying with some friends at the beach, and you know what? She fell asleep while sunbathing uh, one afternoon after staying up till 3 a.m. the night before. She was awakened by some shouting and could not move for several seconds. All right? Uh, she was aware of her surroundings. She did not lose bladder or bowel control during the episode. And this episode of, you know, uh, not being able to move only happened once in the past. They do an Epworth score and it's eight, which is pretty normal. And, you know, why do you even bother doing Epworth? Yeah, to kind of say, well, how sleepy are you? What's the cutoff? I mean, I guess you could say around 12 and higher, meaning you're sleepy. She's otherwise healthy. She takes no meds. And I, I guess she's doing pretty good in school. Which of the following is, do you recommend for this patient? So in this 24-year-old who was up the night before and just kind of goofing off. And then, you know, she has an episode where she was suddenly awakened. And I guess she was awake, but she couldn't move. I mean, what does that sound like? Yeah, kind of sounds like what? Sleep paralysis, right? Uh, what do you want to do with this? Do you want to A, uh, evaluate her for narcolepsy, B, referral to psychiatry, uh, C, some reassurance, uh, D, well, you better make sure you know what it is. Let's just kind of rule out seizures. You know what I mean? What do we feel? And I'm not going to belabor this because you folks are so awesome. You know what I mean? Wrong answer on the boards is always what? refer, especially for this, you know what I mean? Um, no, I think we had enough pearls in here, you no know, bladder or bowel, you know, incontinence here. You know what I mean? I wouldn't work her up for seizures. And, and what is the one reason, what is the one reason I would not work her up for narcolepsy? Yeah, she's not what? Sleepy. And the most important thing to even consider her for narcolepsy is what? sleepiness, excessive daytime sleepiness. And how do I know? Her Epworth is what? Pretty normal. All right. So this is going to be reassurance. So 
mean is sleep paralysis bad? Well, it depends what you think. You know, it's a protective mechanism. So when we talk about REM sleep, you know, I mean, there's always going to be these vivid dreams. In fact, we, you know, we could dream in any stage of sleep. But the vivid ones, the HDTV ones happen in REM sleep. And it's a protective mechanism so we don't reenact our dreams. You know what I mean? And the opposite of this protective mechanism is something called what? REM movement disorder where you lose that protective mechanism. And when you get those dreams of chasing and kicking, you know what I mean? And being a pirate, well, it could endanger yourself and of course endanger your bed partner. But when we talk about sleep paralysis, what happens is that disconnect between the brain and the body. So when you wake up, your body is gonna be what? Well, your body is gonna be still stuck where? In REM sleep. If your body's stuck in REM sleep, you can't what? Move, but the brain is what? Awake. No, no, I mean, I can't really see your hands. Can anyone raise their hand and tell me, have you had an episode of sleep paralysis before? It's pretty scary, huh? Yeah, totally. So yeah, I mean, it's not wrong to have an isolated episode, but if you have recurring episodes, of course you wanna work it up. So how do we categorize sleep paralysis for sleep medicine boards? Does it happen while you're falling asleep? We call that hypnagogic. Is it happening when you're waking up? We call those hypnopopnic. Is it isolated? And what causes isolated sleep paralysis? Just like in this question, it's always going to be sleep deprivation, being sleep deprived. It's probably because, you know, when you want to rebound that sleep, you definitely rebound delta sleep and three sleep, but you also rebound a lot of what? RAM. So more RAM, more time for sleep paralysis. Being jet lagged. Why? Well, I'm not talking about someone who's going to be one time zone away. But if you're going to be more than three time zones away, your REM sleep is all over the place. So that can happen. Of course, alcohol, why second half of the night, multiple awakenings, more chance to get sleep paralysis. And GERD, I mean, once again, multiple awakenings. If you're getting recurrent sleep paralysis, obstructive sleep apnea, somewhere on the differential. But of course, if you have an elevated board sleepiness scale score, daytime sleepiness in the right clinical setting, of course, we tend to kind of combine that when we work up patients with suspected narcolepsy. So people always ask me, why am I seeing things? Because one of the main questions we ask, you know, patients we're working up for narcolepsy is, are you having these vivid dreams? Are you getting these visual hallucinations? So why do people see aliens and other scary things with sleep paralysis? is you're in this hyper alert state. Your brain wants to wake you up. So you may see like someone standing in the doorway or a giant spider. And of course, what do you see is, you know, really what's going on in that decade or that period of time. And of course, in the nineties and eighties, it was all about aliens. And you hopefully make yourself move and wake up and get out of the paralysis. So when you talk to people who have sleep paralysis, they sometimes say they feel like there's a demon sitting on their chest, you know, and why is that? Well, number one, you're in REM sleep. In REM sleep, we see sleep apnea the most because you lose, you know, tone of the muscles of the upper airway. Your breathing becomes very what? Shallow. So you tend to suffocate when you have sleep paralysis, like someone's sitting on your chest and you're already gonna be in this hyperaroused state, you're gonna be seeing things. So you'll probably feel like you can't breathe and probably if there's a demon sitting on your chest. How scary is that? And this is a very, very famous painting right here. Does anyone know what's the name of this painting? Don't worry, it's not gonna be on your board exams. It's called the what? The Incubus, not the rock band. This is called the Incubus. So anyways, ooh. Nice setup by me. 
Now let's start talking about hypersomnias. Let's do this question over here. Which of the following statements concerning the multiple sleep latency test is true? So there are going to be four choices. I'll just read them out. Is it going to be A, the mean sleep latency discriminates normal individuals from those with abnormal sleepiness? B, a mean sleep latency of greater than 10 minutes is considered normal. Uh, its utility in diagnosing narcolepsy is mainly based on the presence of sleep onset REM periods. We call those what? SOREMs. It is indicated to help predict a sleepy individual's ability to, uh, to drive a motor vehicle. So what do you folks think this is going to be? Well, let's work this out together. So when you do an MSLT, and the only time I want to hear the word MSLT come out of your mouths is when you're working up someone for what? Some kind of central hypersomnia, right? Whether it's going to be type 1 or type 2 narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia. And we'll talk about those in a second. But does the mean sleep latency of discriminate normal from abnormal sleepiness? The answer is no, because, you know, if I did an MSLT and I was sleep deprived the night before, would I have a positive MSLT? The answer is what? Yes. So it's not going to be A. How about B? A mean sleep latency of greater than 10 minutes is considered normal? No. You know I mean, if you had a full night's sleep the night before, you shouldn't be sleeping at all. Of course, to diagnose narcolepsy, it has to be less than eight minutes, but you still fell asleep. We don't call that normal, you know. D, I mean, it just sounds like a leading question. If someone, number one, it's the wrong test. If we're doing a test to help, you know, get some more data about can you drive a bus or a car? Yeah, probably use the MWT, the maintenance of wakefulness testing. But no test is going to tell me that, hey, this predicts you're going to be safe to drive a motor vehicle. So D is the wrong answer. So really, the best choice of these four has to be C. MSLT is, good, is really used for its utility to diagnose narcolepsy based on how many of these sleep onset REM periods you have. Answer is what? C. So everything I just talked about is in this answer slide for those of you taking the API pass machine course. So I really want to spend some time to talk about, you know, a disease that I'm very passionate about is narcolepsy. And I think right now it's an important time to kind of go over some of the diagnostic summary of central hypersomnias, you know. So when we talk about central hypersomnias, I really do think of the big three for the board exams. Number one. There's type 1 narcolepsy. Next is type 2 narcolepsy. And the last is going to be idiopathic hypersomnia. So let's just go across all of them. So when we start working up a central hypersomnia, how long do you have symptoms for? At least three months. It's a memorized cutoff. So you've got to have at least three months of symptoms. And what is going to be the most important thing? Excessive daytime sleepiness. Now, when you look at all three, Having excessive daytime sleepiness is mandatory for both type 1 and type 2 narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia. What about cataplexy? So if we talk about type 1 narcolepsy, yes, that's what makes it type 1 narcolepsy is the presence of cataplexy. Can someone with narcolepsy develop cataplexy at a, you know, later in the stage of their disease course? Yes. Do we often 
not recognize cataplexy? The answer is yes, because there's something called partial cataplexy that may be only in the face, may only be in the hands or legs, buckling of the knees, slurring of the speech, blurring of the vision. So sure, is it possible we're really missing partial cataplexy in pediatrics? Definitely. But for the adult section, cataplexy must be present if we're going to be calling it type 1 narcolepsy. Type 2 is never going to be present, or else we'll call that what? Type 1. And in idiopathic hypersomnia, the answer is it's never going to be present, or else it's not even idiopathic hypersomnia. We should be working up what? Type 1 narcolepsy. What about doing an MSLT, a multiple sleep latency test? So for type 1 narcolepsy, the answer is you don't, it's not required. Why? Well, if you're in a kind of a mean mood, you could do a lumbar puncture, <laughs> but it's typically performed. So it's, it's the wording, right? So they ask you on your board exams, must you perform an MSLT for a type 1 narcolepsy diagnosis? The answer is no, though it's typically performed. Uh, for type 2 narcolepsy, the answer is yes, and we'll talk about what, what you need to see. For idiopathic hypersomnia, the answer is no, and that's where it gets a little tricky because there are alternative things you can look at to help make the diagnosis, but it is typically performed. It's typically performed. So now, what, what, what do you need to see on the MSLT if you're going to be using it for diagnosis? All right. So for type 1 narcolepsy, the mean sleep latency is going to be less than eight minutes, and you're going to have two sleep onset REM periods. If it's going to be for type 2 narcolepsy, it's going to be same thing, a mean sleep latency of less than eight minutes and two sleep onset REM periods. But for idiopathic hypersomnia, the mean sleep latency, once again, less than eight minutes, but you'll get zero to one sleep onset REM period. So what are going to be the alternatives if you're not going to use an MSLT to make the diagnosis? What else are your options? So for type 1 narcolepsy, you could do a lumbar puncture. So having a low CSF hypocretin, and you're going to ask me how low? Well, less than 110 is a memorized value, or less than one-third of the control. So that's going to be for type 1 narcolepsy. We usually just do an MSLT, but you also have the option for doing a lumbar puncture. For type 2 narcolepsy, there's no choice. You want to diagnose type 2 narcolepsy, you have to do an MSLT. For idiopathic hypersomnia on the board exams, well, if you're not going to do an MSLT, your other options are doing a PSG polysomography. The total sleep time has to be greater than 600. 160 minutes. Now, I don't even know how I could practically do that without coordinating with my sleep center. That's a long time. That's 11 hours practically. Or you got to do one week actigraphy showing greater than 660 minutes average of total sleep time. You know, I'll be honest, our sleep center here at USC, we don't even have actigraphy and I don't know how practical it is. So, on the board exams, do you need to perform an MSLT for idiopathic hypersomnia? No. These are, here are the alternatives you can do, but what do we commonly do is what? MSLT. Let's keep on going. So what about doing a lumbar puncture? Well, you'd only do that in 
type 1 narcolepsy. And I already mentioned the hypocretin level is going to be low. Type 2 narcolepsy, we do not do this. And if we do, hypocretin will be normal. Idiopathic hypersomnia, we do not do the LP. But if it was, it would be normal. When do you have to rule out other causes of hypersomnia? For type 1 narcolepsy, it's not mandatory. For type 1, it's not mandatory. For type 2 narcolepsy, it is necessary to rule out things like what? You know, um, obstructive sleep apnea, other types of medical disorders. Same thing with idiopathic hypersomnia. You must rule out other disorders. So what is the summary of the criteria? And why am I spending so much time on this? This is a triple star high yield pearl for the boards. So to diagnose type 1 narcolepsy, you must have excessive daytime sleepiness plus either cataplexy and an MSLT with less than with a mean sleep latency of less than eight minutes and two SORMs or a low CSF hypocretin. For type 2 narcolepsy, you need excessive daytime sleepiness with the MSLT with a mean sleep latency of less than eight minutes and two sleep onset REM periods. And for idiopathic hypersomnia, look at all the choices. You must have excessive daytime sleepiness plus either choice A, doing the MSLT with a mean sleep latency of less than eight minutes plus zero to one sleep onset RAMs, or two at PSG with a total sleep time greater than 660 minutes, good luck, or C, doing actigraphy for a week plus that has a total sleep time of greater than 660 minutes. Good luck. <laughs> uh, for gene studies, I just want to mention this because someone's going to throw it out there. The gene associated with, you know, narcolepsy is uh, the HLA DQB10602. Good luck in memorizing that. And the thing I wanted to mention, it can be seen in type 1 narcolepsy, type 2, and idiopathic hypersomnia, but it's most commonly seen in people with type 1 narcolepsy. And HLA has a super limited role in diagnostic testing. So I just wanted to mention that. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.